0: Hello and welcome to the November edition of Cynotopia. Uh, My name is Jim Ross, uh, producer of the show and managing editor of Take One Magazine. The normal host of the show and my co producer Amanda can't be here this month uh, because she's doing many, many. Outdoor screening events and couldn't quite fit into her schedule. She's very sad about that because we'll be looking at Spencer later in the show, so it kind of means she cannot drop in a snide remark about the Jackie uh, Kennedy biopic <laughs> with Natalie Portman, which she, uh, I'm pretty certain, really does not like. Um, but fortunately, I am joined by two folks who have been on the show before and we're very pleased to have back. Uh, first of all, we've got uh, Simon Boy. How are you doing, Simon? Hello. Yeah, good to be back. Thanks, Jim. Um, looking forward to discussing some films. Good stuff. Uh, and back on the show after uh, a few months out is uh, Clara Strachan. Clara, how are you doing?
1: I am full of beans, Jim.
0: Full of beans. Full of beans. Well, hopefully that will continue once we ta- start talking about a few films. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see how we do. Um, so we've got a very good show ahead of us, uh, and I'll be talking a little bit about some other events that are happening with Cinescapes and Cinetopia and things like that. Um, So, on the show today, we are going to be reviewing Spencer, the new uh, Princess Diana biopic directed by Pablo Lorraine. Petit Maman, the new uh, short and sweet 74-minute, I think it is, film from Celine Sciamma, uh, her follow-up to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Then, we're going to be taking a look at The Power of the Dog, Jane Campion's new film, which recently screened at the London Film Festival, uh, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and... uh, very stellar cast. We're also, it's been out for a while, but it's a big release and we have some thoughts on it. We're also going to spend a little bit of time talking about Dune right at the end of the show, Denny Villeneuve's adaptation of the Frank Herbert novel. Uh, We're also going to have some short film recommendations and that will be us for this month. So without further ado, let's crack on and we'll start getting into our first film. Mm -hmm. Is she here yet? Not yet, ma'am, no. Then she's late. Yes. She is late. Your Royal Highness.
1: Mummy.
0: you. <laughs> Family are all gathered in the drawing room. They are waiting. you. So stand very still and smile a lot. They know everything. They don't.
1: Do you want to be the queen? Not be your mum.
0: Okay, so the first film we're going to talk about is Spencer. Uh, Simon, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film, uh, set the scene, and then let us know what you thought of it. Sure.
2: So this is the latest film from Pablo Lorraine, uh, and it's kind of in a similar vein to uh, Jackie, one of his previous films about Jacqueline Kennedy. Um, it, it continues the theme of women broken by institutions of power. So this follows uh, Diana Spencer... Uh, over three days, at Christmas time, uh, when her marriage to Prince Charles is is falling apart, and it follows the film follows her visiting Sandringham, interacting with the royal family, interacting with her boys William and Harry, um, and the psychological toll that it that it has on her, and that the institution of the royal family and the monarchy has on on this individual. Um, I thought it was a really interesting film. I I really liked it. I thought it had a lot of style. Um, I'll say more about it, but I'm interested to hear to hear you two's thoughts.
0: So, I I like this a lot. But before I go into any details about why, I am sensing there might be a dissenting opinion coming from Clara. So I'm going to let Clara open things with. Uh, how did you How did you find this? I I think it's fair to say it's not a conventional biopic. But how did it land with you?
1: Mm. Unsurprisingly, um, to people who know me or have met me, <laughs> um, yes, I do have I do have a critical opinion of this film. I kind of when I when I found out that it was it was being made, I, I it was a sort of the immediate reaction of sort of laughing and rolling my eyes because of just the sheer irony of it that the woman who has been surveilled and looked at and picked apart and has had so many narratives created about her has another one to contend with. Um, <laughs> I just I I couldn't see it going smoothly, but and then I saw the trailer for it when I was watching June, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. I had a good I had a good chuckle. Uh, I was then I wasn't told that it was going to be take a, a sort of a horror film psychological thriller bent of a biopic, which I found quite interesting. So I decided to give it a watch, but I still think i could i could go on for a while so i'll just i'll leave it there that's my opinion for now (laughs) okay
0: at some point (laughs) i think um so my i I was intrigued to see what i made of this film right because pablo lorraine is a is an interesting filmmaker i've liked a lot of his films i think we reviewed emma on the show like a few months ago when that came out and i i got a lot out of that um i've not actually seen jackie so um my my But my opinion isn't too coloured by Amanda's uh, intense dislike of that film. Um, But (laughs) this film was an interesting one for me to approach because I have zero time for the royal family. You will struggle to come across a bigger, small-r Republican than me. Um, So I I don't really have a lot of time for this kind of like ridiculous industrial complex that goes around... um, you know writing about them talking about them observing them uh, and all the rest of it and so you know I mean the, like the crown on Netflix for instance i I kind of appreciate some aspects of it very so often it just tips into something I'm not particularly interested in so I am both unsurprised because of the Pablo Lorraine element and surprised because of the royal element I really like this film and I think part of the reason for it is I will be quite frank it it kind of speaks to my my own prejudices really I think mm. to to come to come out of this and have any any sympathy for kind of the royal family um, the apparatus of the British state is maybe another way I would put it because there are certain free there are certain framings and certain shots where I think that's that's a key thing of me what Lorraine is uh, trying to get across um, you'd have to be a psychopath to come out with any sympathy for these people at the end of it um, and it does it through looking at Diana, but whilst it is a reasonably personal story to her, I think because of the way the film presents things visually, it is trying to say something a bit wider than that. Simon, is that, is that something that you thought? or that it, Basically, what, what was your reaction to yeah. it?
2: Yeah, I'm in the same position of you. I've, I've got no love for the royal family or the institution of British monarchy. Um, but i do enjoy critique of the british monarchy right? which is why i've enjoyed the crown on netflix and why i enjoyed this Um, because it is explicitly critical of the royal family as an institution and as you alluded to jim britain itself the united kingdom as an institution uh sort of through those figures um but I, I really enjoyed it because coming back to something that clara said uh i i think it's the best horror film of the year um, it has all the trappings of a 1970s or 1980s horror film like Don't Look Now or Possession or The Omen. Um, it, it's kind of evocative of The Shining in how it represents Sandy. I was about to say, the as, way the, way the yeah. place is
0: shot has big Overlook Hotel yeah. vibes to it. At, at yeah, it shoots
2: it like the Overlook Hotel. You know, big meandering corridors, huge halls too big for any human to comfortably live in. Um, and I found it particularly evocative of Twin Peaks' Firewalk with Me in its kind of off-kilter jazz soundtrack, which reminded me of Badalamenti's work. I'm
0: just pleased that you found a way to get Twin Peaks in there. That's that's very much a <laughs> yep, home yep. turf, there, Simon. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and the narrative of uh, a blonde woman being driven to madness is very, <laughs> uh, very Twin Peaks' Firewalk with Me. Um, so I just, I just, I just really liked all those kind of genre trappings. And I found the scenes of this woman being psychologically tortured genuinely disturbing. Uh, I, I think it really captures the edge of that, the maddening nature of it, um, and, and ties it into this this critique of
0: British institutions. What did we um, What did we make a Christian Stewart in the role?
1: I found it very. I found it painful. I found it very <laughs> painful. I mean, but. Biopics can be can, can be very fun if the character isn't a person whose image has been reproduced and is so recognisable and a person whose mannerisms are so well known by everyone. So seeing Chris, Kristen Stewart sort of mockishly imitating them and in my opinion doing the same kind of stereotypical thing that she's always been doing in films, her portraying a stereotype of sort of a shallow cliche of a mentally ill pariah woman, I find it quite painful to watch at times, quite cringeworthy. really. And un- un- unconvincing ultimately.
0: It's interesting. It's interesting. It's interesting you say that, right? Because it, now I, I don't think I had the same reaction. I thought, I, I thought her performance was quite good. It was fine. I think she, I think she does what the film needs her to, by and large. But there's, there has been quite a lot of. I mean, she, she's had a lot of good performances in recent years, and I think there's been a lot of praise for her performance. I think because it's a princess Diana biopic, inevitably, much to my chagrin, will be, you know, there'll be Awards talk further down the line, um but sorry, what did you make of it? Because I actually, I actually, bizarrely, and I, I don't want to be, I, I, I don't want to give a negative impression of reports because I, I, I find it all right, but I, I actually thought it was one of the the less interesting aspects of the film, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I
2: liked, I, I liked Kristen Stewart's performance in this. Um, I think she can do terrific performances, um, like in Personal Shopper, mm-hmm. which is one of my favourite films. Yeah. Um, I, I liked her performance in this I did not like her impersonation mm. um, I, I found that the way that she talked quite quite breathily like this and getting into <laughs> yeah. this British accent oh God, it with a very breathy way of talking really grated on me at first yeah. I, I settled into it as the film <laughs> went on and I it wore you got down. into that register but it, it, it did grate on me at first
0: I I think the at-first bit is a key bit. So, I mean, I think I can't remember... I I don't think it's the very opening of the film, but it's very early on where um, Diana is lost and she can't find where... Or claims to be lost and can't find where she's going. She goes into, like, some, you know, cafe or something off the road. (laughs) Yeah, or something like that. And it has this sort of, like, moment where it's like, you know, everybody's recognised. It's like, oh, my God, it's Diana. And, like, you know, nudging each other. And that bit there that felt more like... A, it's very early on, right? So it's saying that to me felt a lot more like a conventional biopic, and that, I just found, was... That, that just stunk out the place. So I was very happy once yeah. it settled into that slightly more... It, a little bit more driven by the director, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think once it settled into that, I, I I I got a lot out of it. I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I particularly enjoyed the fact that there were, there's many shots of a kitchen in the royal household where it says... um keep noise to a the minimum. They can hear you. you yeah, know, keep it's just your like, voice down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. just this, this, Be on this your best specter, time. this this ghost of this sort of like ridiculous institution hanging over them the entire time. And I think once it settled into that sort of thing, I think the film was very strong and I thought it was excellent. I, and honestly, I really got a lot out of it, but I can I can certainly see what you're saying. I think that, that scene in the opening is where I felt it sort of like, you know, was maybe at just, its most inelegant.
1: I just feel, I mean... The, so she was extremely Diana herself was a very brave person and very forthright and honest and very eloquent about the problems of mental health and especially like the gendered uh, mental health issues um and that was that was very groundbreaking but i didn't see any of that eloquence and intelligence she just seemed very like like a petulant teenager and the fact that they the fact that the whole the whole film is just so heavy with this foreboding this inescapable there's this inescapable, clumsily, plastered tone of just of fear and paranoia over everything. I feel like it's quite insulting to her, almost. It feels it feels like it was trying to be a horror film, a psychological horror, but it just, it, it didn't, and I felt like it was a little bit reductive and was a bit two-dimensional. And I know that she had, their scenes where she is interacting with her sons, and there's, there's glimmers of those moments, and this is, this is a point in her life when she was entrapped, and she was reaching, you know, she was at a low mentally. I understand that, but it does feel like, um, a bit unfair, and like I say, ironic, given the fact that there is a light, there's a line in the film as well where um, where uh, Diana's closest friend in Sandringham, which is um, a member of the the Help, <laughs> um, is saying, "Don't act like they want you to act like you're just gonna you're just gonna prove them right if you act crazy." And she's and I was just like, "But that's what this film is doing essentially," because then she starts w- w- waffling on about how she's seen the ghost of Anne Boleyn all over the place, and it just it was just so agonizing. I just thought it was so unfair to her as a real two dimensional complex person.
0: You see, the the thing, yeah, I, I I I would disagree. I think right that purely could I I I I would take a point slightly about yes, maybe the fact that it's trying to use this woman's image to make what I think is a broader point, right, mm. and that, that that may be kind of you know perhaps being troubling given the way that. She wasn't really considered she wasn't really considered as a real person during her life, and her image was appropriate for all sorts. of reasons. So I kind of take that point to an extent, but I think what was interesting for me is that broader picture that they painted because it it it, it allows you to relate to that situation more when when it could if we put to put to one side the. Um, the mental health issues we'll come back to that but in terms of kind of like th- there is a danger with somebody in this sort of privileged position it can seem a bit like you know first world problems um i don't think it does that because it allows you to relate to it more and i think the way that works in favor of um her as a character maybe as a person is debatable is it kind of looks at the way these institutions hang over british life and i think timothy spall's character is a key thing in this right so he plays this sort of orderly who's overseeing the royal household for the weekend i think he's absolutely superb in that role and he kind of appears out of nowhere just constantly watching diana the way that Always these, watching. yeah, the way that these institutions like hang over British like it kind of looks at it and someone like Diana, privileged or not, and says, "Well, how could how could you be yourself? How could you thrive under this? It's so unbelievably suffocating. This weight mm. of pointless tradition and stuffiness, and the idea that you know being proper and not making a fuss is the most important thing in maintaining decorum. How could you not have a massive mental toll taken?" As a result of that, so I, I think in that respect, it kind of works in her favour by broadening that perspective out. I, th- I I do take the point though, but I think for me, for me, it worked. I think, but that's fair. I, I'd take that point.
2: Yeah, I I I, I agree with that. It, it starts with um, the words on screen: uh, "A fable from a true tragedy," mm. which for me kind of disconnected it from Diana, the real person. So it was just. Diana the character who Kristen Stewart is playing um and and maybe that's unfair of the film maybe that's unfair to Diana the person who it clearly is based off yeah. but for me it didn't it didn't link to the real person enough for me to interrogate it in the way you have um in the way you have here mm. uh, which has led to me maybe having to rethink it I, I certainly want to re rewatch it
1: yeah yeah i suppose i mean I, my my main gripe i suppose is the depiction of mental health and it being a bit it, i just don't think it was i i just i know you really said it was a really great film and you really enjoyed it but i just didn't see it like i didn't think it was a brilliant film dealing with mental health like you know it, it wouldn't touch it's not even in the same league remotely as like something like melancholia for example i mean so i kind of wished it had gone that kind of way is and it, gone a bit is more a particular?
0: Extreme. is it a particular aspect you feel it didn't do or is it like an over because the one thing i will say is with mm. the exception of one scene i think when it i think the scenes is where it deals with disordered eating or maybe mm. that maybe feels a little bit slight to me as i say with the exception of one scene is it an overarching thing or was it specific things it didn't quite i think i think
1: it was actually the script um the script and, the, and uh Kristen's performance Primarily, um, and it would have been good to have a bit more magical realism in there as well, because I mean, there's a lot of links to the bloody chamber there in this film. Um, so, like, you know, modern feminist gothic work, and and I feel like they could have, if if you've got the scene with the Dan is eating pearls, breaking her teeth at dinner, go hard, like go again, like keep going. Don't don't then go back to. Oh, would this be what she said realistically to the people behind the scenes? Like, if you're gonna do it, I feel like you should just go the whole hog but it, I feel like it sort of didn't sit in either world and I, I mean that that can be fine like a hybrid of genre is like can be done very well but I feel like it failed to be a, um, a, a powerful um, strong biopic or a psychological horror or a, a, a feminist gothic work it just felt a bit on incomplete to me and I and I wanted it to be good because I did when I was when I was a little girl obviously I was she was, she was the princess and I thought that was great and I thought she was A fantastic, the people's princess. So I do, I do, I do want it to be good, even though I do laugh. But it's just this whole thing built up around her, this gushing, this like I love everything to do with Diana. Just this sort of mindless worship is something which I kind of taking task, I think. But
0: maybe I'm being too. Well, I think so. But you know, you know, variety is the spice of life. We need to have variety of opinions on here. Um, Mm. What I I, I am going to agree with you a little bit on bits of the script. because I, I, I'm personally of the opinion that most of... And maybe I'm being unnecessarily harsh here, but I feel like most of the things that I think of as good in this film, and I think we can guess from this review, I think there are a lot of them, I do think they come from Pablo Lorraine. I do think they come from the the director's approach. Also, the cinematography. Claire Mattin, who's worked with Celine Sciamma a lot, and we'll probably talk about her again when we come to petit Man. So To look at the film and the way that he chooses to frame things and the things that they linger on, I think adds a lot, a lot here. Um, the script itself, every so often, it just slips into making the subtext text. I mean, mm-hmm. in particular, there's one there's one part where um, Sally Hawkins, who plays the the member the, the member of the Help that that you mentioned, Clara, where she kind of is having this conversation. She's like, "There needs to be two of you," and it's just like, "Well, we get this." We get this, I, you know. There's no like. I, I feel like that could have been left unsaid. So every so often it does something like that, and you can just see these hints, little hints of a less elegant film.
1: For me, it was it was where, for me it was when the dress the dressing scene with Sally Hawkins, and she says where Diana's holding a dress up to her, and she says it doesn't fit me. And then um, Hawkins was obviously saying, worrying about her having an eating disorder and says, no, of course it does. And she goes, no, it doesn't fit my mood. It needs to be black. And I was like, oh my God. Like, yeah, there, please,
0: there, are, like, there, 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 there is me. the occasional moment like that where I will concede, I think, that the, 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 the <laughs> script isn't, I don't think the script is bringing as much to it yeah. as Pablo, or, or even for me, actually, maybe Kristen Stewart's performance, right? Because she has these bits where the, the, it's not that great, but personally, I got a lot more out of that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, all the elements I loved, I think, are the atmosphere of the film, how it's shot, how it looks, um, this pervasive sense of claustrophobia that it gives, um, this, this like you said, Clara, this exaggerated sense of, of um, the impact of mental health on someone, um, and the performances, and all that is sort of outside the dialogue. Um, the dialogue is kind of a skeleton propping up this this atmosphere, this environment that the film created that that really appealed to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, actually, I mean, the dialogue, I mean, maybe this is my memory playing tricks on me. I mean, it's fairly sparing anyway. I mean, I think most of the most impactful yeah, but- ones are scenes set inside her head or her reaction to things or, you know, ones that are based in glances and looks. Than, which is what I'm saying about Kristen Stewart's performance. Actually, this will sound like I'm damning with faint praise, but I'm not. I think it works best when she's not talking. <laughs> <laughs> in the <a> sense that, <laughs> but in the sense of the way she's bouncing off other other people and kind of like looks that she does in relation Acting to like Timothy Spall's going. like well yeah exactly you know i think that that that's again the part of it that, that i think works the best for me
2: yeah a lot of the dialogue like you said didn't need to be there cuz we get the subtext from the performance we get it from from what's on the camera yeah. i just love the soundtrack as well it's a great johnny, johnny greenwood soundtrack mostly piano music Slowly, sort of rising to a maddening pitch uh, and kind of meandering jazz looping through Diana's head um, that only sort of
0: drifts away at the end
2: as she's leaving Sandringham. Um, it's a really good soundtrack.
0: I'd agree with that, I, I, and we're not we're not trying to plan these overlaps, but I, I, I think that's also not the last time that we're going to talk about Johnny Greenwood on this mm-hmm. uh, this particular edition of the show. Um, but that is that's Spencer slightly mixed review I would say um, amongst the three of us here, but I think it's definitely worth checking out. Um, certainly, me, me and Simon enjoyed it a lot, but Clara has made some very strong points uh, that it shouldn't be off scot free for its uh, occasional occasional <laughs> <in the elegances. laughs> Um, So that's out right now, you can probably catch it just about anywhere, Um, uh, let us know what you think. Okay, so the next film we're going to talk about is Petite Maman, directed by Celine Sciamma. Uh, it's been kicking around for a while. I think it debuted at uh, Berlin early this year, and there's been a lot of film festivals since. Got a bunch of uh, partner screenings during London Film Festival. Uh, Clara, why don't you tell us a little bit about the setup of the film and what it's about, uh, and then we can get into what we thought of it.
1: Sure. Uh, so. Celine Sciamma brings us a lovely understated film about family relationships and time and what it is to be a child and what it is to understand your parents as humans <laughs> who also went through a childhood as well and their own experiences as well.
0: And Simon,
2: what did you make of it? I, I absolutely adored this film. Um, I, I really, really loved it. It's it's one of those films that I just want to live in. Mm. Uh, it's It's got such a crisp autumnal palette uh, to the cinematography, again from Claire Mafan, um, who shot Spencer. Um, it looks great. Um, the, the story of the young girl um, visiting her grandmother's old house uh, to clear it out and then going into the woods and meeting another little girl and striking up a, a friendship with her while navigating these sort of too complex for a child issues with her parents of, of mourning and grief. I just, I just loved it. Um, I think the kids, uh, it's, it's two twins playing the kids, Josephine Sands and Gabriel Sands. Uh, and, they they give such terrifically understated performances. Um, just really powerful. Um, it packs so much into, into quite a short running time. Really. It's only 72 minutes long. Um,
0: yeah, I was about to, it, It's very short. I mean, it's even shorter than I even indicated in the intro of the show. And I think it's mm. it, it, it kind of shows how just how good Selene Shiyama is actually. The, I I'm not somebody who yeah. tends to get emotional in films. I, I mean, I think I can count the films I've I've cried on on. You know my fingers basically, and I I didn't during this film just because I, th- I think I'm a bit like that. But I mean, Christ, you hadn't on the point of it about six minutes into the film. I checked, you know, because <laughs> it, it's just this this wonderful scene where the, so the, like her her mother her um so the the the, the character that this mostly um sits on is Nellie played by Josephine Sands who's the the daughter of um the character is called. La Mer, but basically her her grandmother has died, and they've gone to clean out the house, and you know, you know to tie up uh, loose affairs there. And basically, it's just this. It's it's just <laughs> in the opening minutes. There's just this kind of like absolutely lovely kind of way that she kind of supports or connects with her mother as she's driving there, and she's sitting in the back seat, and it's just it's absolutely beautiful. it's it it's just it's such a simple moment, and there's something about the way that it's. Um, you know, the way it's framed and, like, the the actions that go through, because it's not a dialogue scene, right? Um, The way that it's done is just... It's just great. I mean, I don't really know what what other way to say it. I think... um, And it does show what a skilled director she she is. And she also wrote this, and you know, her last film was one of my favourite films of that year. Um, And, to be honest, I'll be surprised if this isn't there as well. It does this wonderful, wonderful job of conveying the effect that grief can have on you and how that, how you put, the, I gotta kind of think of about how you process it as an adult and then how you, how you would process, how as a child, you would process an adult processing that. Mm. And it's just mm. that it kind of, the, 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 the mechanisms it uses to capture that are really imaginative and really quite insightful, I think. And I think the, the way that the, um, the two young children, in the film played by the twins that Simon mentioned, the way they interact and the way that that develops over the film as you start to understand more about it is it is really really pretty great. And I think it's it does that that great job of not being and and Simon Simon's written a, a review of it for Take One, which we'll publish shortly. But I've already seen it, and Simon makes a very strict point that it doesn't talk down to kind of that emotional level. That the children are at, like they have a way of a, a way of processing in it, and it kind of gets that across in a non patronising way. Um, it looks great. I think I'm I'm very much on board with Simon about the the palette uh, and the way it looks. But really, I, I I don't really have a bad thing to say about this film. No. I mean, I really and it, like she really does more in the space of about seventy minutes than some directors do in the space of uh, three hours. It's really a really a prime example of how if you tell a story well. You don't. If it's a like well, if it's a long film and you tell it well, you don't know how long it is. If it's a short film and you tell it well, then it feels like it said everything it needs to. Um, mm. So, so yeah, I really, I really connected with this film superbly.
1: I completely agree. I mean, it's hazy and soft and sweet, but it's never saccharine. It plays the time and space really beautifully and deftly and subtly. It's, it's a soft edge. It, it, cr- it manages to convey, as you were saying, Jim the issues of grief and memory and time, but in a really soft-edged sci-fi kind of way, but mm. grounded in a very realistic drama. Um, it kind of, it reminded me at times of ghost of a ghost story, and also uh, Tales from the Loop. Um, but I suppose mm. that would be a bit more, but yeah, just in a sort of very paired back. It just so, it just, you, you could just really float through it, you, and you're very transported. It, it doesn't, it doesn't ever catch you and take you out of where, where they are, it's, it's great.
2: Yeah, it's it's there's a magical realist element to the mm. film that sort of separates it from, say, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, but still it still feels of a piece with that kind of mm. filmmaking. This kind of gentle, well put together, delicate filmmaking, um, for lack of a better word, um, and it's it's. I just loved it. Yeah,
0: well, the 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 funny thing is, I think there's a case for this film because because of the setup, right? And the the, you know, you've said uh, magical realism, Simon, and that's entirely accurate. But I mean, you could easily make an argument for this being the best sci-fi film of the year. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's Mm. and I think the thing that I like about it is it takes this. you know, and I think if you translate the French title, I don't think it's much of a secret about what the what the setup is here exactly. I'll I'll, I'll leave it unsaid here just in case you don't. But I think if you translate the title, it becomes quite clear <laughs> what's going on. Um, but it takes this um, this impossible mechanism, this impossible setup, and then really uses it to say something profound about, in this case, how we process grief, but really something about the characters. And for my as a big sci-fi fan. That's the thing I like about sci-fi when it's done well. It's taking these it's taking these mechanisms and then abstracting it away from, you know, somebody's specific situation to say something bigger. And it, and this film, in only seventy-two minutes, in this very kind of like stripped back setup, I mean essentially the I mean, the sets are essentially, you know, a house and some trees outside it. I mean, that's essentially the 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 settings for for the film and it manages to say so much in that time that it's um it it really is a a, a skillful take on it. So I I didn't I don't know what I expected going into this because like I'm a big fan of Shiama, but I didn't know too much about the film. That's why I'm kind of like leaving some stuff unsaid, but it's just I think the the levels on which you can connect with this um is really Really, very touching, and I think you know this is not the first time in Shiyama's career, but I think the the performances she gets out of the the two little, the two little girl actors, is superb, like really, and we're with them for the vast vast majority of the film. I I had the privilege of seeing this at a London
2: Film Festival screening where, Siyama did a Q and A Q&A afterwards, um, and and she was terrific. She is the coolest person in the world, um, but she she said. She hadn't intended to cast twins, but uh, these twins came to the casting call, and just from the way they walked together, she said, she could feel that these were the characters that she had written. Um, yeah, that's a lovely story. Um, and it's, you were saying, Jim, it's it's a very universal film, but it's also very specific. It, it's clearly mm. tied into Shyama's own experiences I mean she directed it she wrote the script the shooting location is her hometown as a child uh, she designed the costumes she contributed to the music she's she's poured so much of herself into this and yet it feels entirely universal it, it says so much about so much human experience no
0: you're, you're entirely right I think it, like the, the ability to connect to it kind of like on so many in so many ways. In some ways, actually, I I find it and and I say this as somebody who loved a portrait of a Lady on Fire. I think, as I say it was one of my favourite films of that year. It feels like a much more scaled back, less um, Grand film than that, I think, but in some ways, it actually has a it, i i think it maybe has a wider resonance with what it talks about, you know, which is not you know like Portrait of is the last film that made me nearly cry in a film, right? So you can still connect with that for obvious reasons. But there's something about the there's something about the story here and what it is framing and that kind of trying to understand grief as an adult, trying to understand your parents and them going through that as a child and. Everything there, where it's just it, it's something that I think pretty much everybody has experienced either as a child or as an adult or both, um, and I think I think it captures that experience just absolutely beautifully. Anyway, um, so I'll leave it there for Petit my man. Uh, I think that is a very very hearty recommendation from all three of us. Um, it's been acquired by Mubi, so it will be on that streaming service at some point in the future. But I think it's getting a small cinema release from November 19th um, and for those of you who are in the Cambridge area can make it there we'll be getting screened at Cambridge Film Festival I believe shortly before that so do check it out heartily recommend it an excellent follow-up to a pretty much universally adored last film from Celine Shiama. <laughs>
1: years since our first run together 1900 and nothing it's a long time
0: what you doing getting mixed up with her you are marvelous Rose we were married Sunday
1: What little lady made these? I did, sir. (laughs)
2: Well, Brother Phil?
0: Okay, so the next film we're going to talk about is The Power of the Dog, um, which screened at London Film Festival recently and a bunch of partner screenings around the country. Um, Clara, it's you and I that have seen this one, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the film and what the setup is?
1: is. So, Jane Campion apparently came out of an early retirement to make this film, which is about um, corrosive masculinity and sadism on the western frontier of America in the early 1920s. It's about individuality secrets sadism it's it's wonderful I have, I have a lot to say and i cannot wait to
0: say it yeah i think um i think you, you've you packed a lot into that little statement but it does it does very much cover all that ground um so it, it puts us in the the american west with the burbank brothers um so phil played by benedict cumberbatch and george played by jesse Plemons. Um, and basically, it, it follows a part of their life where um, George takes a wife, played by Kirsten Dunst, and uh, her son, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, uh, Peter, uh, comes into that household. And basically, Benedict Cumberbatch's character, fills a very overbearing character. Um, so they're ranchers, they've been doing this for a long time, and basically George's approach to life is very much different to Phil's and that kind of comes out over time I I love this film I thought it was great um I think we we mentioned in an earlier review uh Johnny Greenwood's score for Spencer um I think it is a huge part of this film a huge part of this film um I'm a big fan of Johnny Greenwood's musical work in film, and I think here it has, it really does elevate the film quite a bit. Mm. Um, not a lot of people put, in my view, anyway, not a lot of people put a foot wrong in this this film. Like Jesse Plemons is somebody I've had a lot of time for, and ever since the first thing I saw him in was Breaking Bad, kind of like quite a while ago, and he's gone on to have a, a really excellent career, and I think this is another entry in that. I think what's interesting about this film is actually Benedict Cumberbatch's performance primarily and the way that it teases out more about his character in particular the way that he interacts with Peter, um, the son played by Cody Smith-McPhee and, McPhee. Um, and that, the way that relationship develops and then it kind of flips on it's it's always kind of like twisting and turning with what the relationship is between characters i think and Mm. what you think of them um what what was the standout element for you clara would you say of the film
1: it's one of those it's one of those films that um as you reflect on it the the reasons that you love it grow more and more (laughs) uh but the push and pull between all the characters is is very is is a standout, but I I personally just am really fascinated with that era, and I think it was done so fantastically. There's a lot of frontier films that have been made in the last hundred years. A lot of frontier films, and it'd be so easy it'd be so easy to just fall back on the stereotypes and you know provide the audience provide an audience with something which ticks all the boxes, something that's gritty and realistic, has a lot of famous faces in it, but it really it really tells the story of. That strange blip in American history, that crossover period where you have extremely repressed, old-fashioned, isolated, calloused men from the frontier who are crossing over into this new money world. They have a lot of social capital and they know how to wield it and they also have a lot of capital (laughs) as well um, to to wield against and, and and to inflict their will upon other people with. It's it's fascinating. So that from a from a class point of view, it's very interesting because there's a lot of um, stratification in there, and it's interesting how they all play. Because obviously, there's there's so many so many films for uh, English films which deal with class because we're obsessed with it. But I find um, early American stratification of class very interesting and in how those were formed and how um, they've sowed the seeds for what America is today. I found it really interesting. So a deep character study and a deep dive into the dark heart. Of these early rich rancher folk <laughs> from Montana was just so fascinating it was done so perfectly and Benedict Cumberbatch is, you've mentioned his performance but it really does bear repeating that this man knows how to do it <laughs> he is he is very good um I suppose that was one of the standout elements as well that it is quite surprising we all know he's a great actor but it is still surprising nonetheless to see him fit into this role so well he apparently <laughs> he went he went underwent some union um psychological um work with a therapist in order to get really deep into it because he was really wanting to commit
0: i I think it i think it shows to be honest and and i think Mm. i think benedict cumberbatch in terms of his he's an actor i have a lot of time for but like when he's when he's been required to do an american accent i've not always bought him in particular Mm. on the on on this show we reviewed the mauritanian um earlier this year and i criticized him for sounding like Foghorn Leghorn um, mm. and I think this is something that he does do occasionally I don't think it's not a thing here I mean you know I'm not an American dialect ex- expert I have no idea whether his um, whether his vocal performance here is accurate what I will say is it's compelling um, mm. and I think in particular he gets across very well that this character of Phil is kind of it kind of shows how repression of certain characteristics can turn toxic especially in certain environments. And I think that that's an interesting aspect of this. The class elements that you mentioned, Clara, are also really interesting here. In particular, this this idea of like how you present yourself if you are wanting to associate with a certain class versus what class you come from yourself. And I think even the way that some people will wear things as a costume, right, in order to fit in. And you can tell and it kind of showed it it shows it in different ways. It manifests differently with um Phil in one direction where he's taken on this very kind of like um, you know, blue collar, tough, you know, hide or at least hide any emotions that are not anger or disdain. Um and bury everything else versus the approach that his brother is taking um jesse Plemons' character where he's trying to ingratiate himself more he's trying to he's trying to associate with what he sees as kind of the higher echelons of society i suppose and then the way that that makes his his wife in some ways uncomfortable actually
1: so this film is really about masculinity i think that's the inescapable undercurrent of a lot of what is going on in this film a lot of um masculine performance and the necessity of of needing to be a particular frontier man um and trying to adhere to a mythology trying to live up to a mythology trying to create your own mythology being uh being obsessed quietly with mythologies of these men um as jim pointed out to me earlier there is he reminded me there is the character of bronco henry in the char- in in the, in the film which is so fascinating because it has not, this character of bronco bronco henry he never materializes he never comes. He never comes through. He never turns up. He's just this fable, this man who apparently some of the men in the film who have had contact with, and they only have, they only have his myth and the weight of his myth to go by. Um, Jane, yeah, Cumberbatch said explicitly in an interview about this film that the film was about toxic masculinity, but then uh, Jane Campion was really uh, reluctant to say it was about toxic masculinity and to use the phrase. Um, yeah, but it's pretty.
0: I think it isn't in the, in the different ways it manifests, right? And I think the, the Bronco Henry characters, or or the lack thereof, is um mm-hmm. is an interesting one, and it also links into what we said earlier about it kind of playing with what your understanding of relationships are. Um, and in particular, so the way he hangs over the film, in particular Benedict Cumberbatch's character Phil, really informs a lot of what's going on and it, it it's an interesting one and it, it it kind of allows you to understand what is happening um now i haven't seen any trailer sort of film so i don't know if this comes through in it, but basically it's probably it becomes apparent very early on right that um phil is just kind of tormenting basically um his brother's new wife um played by kirsten dunst and In some ways, to to switch a little bit away from the performances towards Jane Campion's direction and the score, that is done superbly. Like I mean, we've we've spoken a little bit in Spencer about you know people hanging over proceedings like some sort of spectre or some sort of you know like ominous presence. That's the real power in Cumberbatch's performance here. He embodies that kind of like this, just like. Malevolent presence absolutely superbly and and the way it then kind of gets you to understand maybe why he is the way he is is interesting and in that it doesn't it doesn't of course excuse it, but it does present it does present an explanation it does present why this man is so embittered. Um and I think the you know, the broader ideas that you that you spoke about at the start, Clara, about kind of like, you know, this interaction between different types of people and classes on this kind of this frontier and this new kind of era in American society, the way that all plays into that is really is really interesting. And I think when you then layer all the technical artistry on top of that score um, a lot of the shot making that Campion actually manages it, it's really excellent for me and I did come into this expecting to maybe be left a little cold by Cumberbatch if I'm honest because of the previous you know Foghorn Leghorn concerns that I've I've made before but I, I wasn't I wasn't he he was excellent in this and it's kind of uniformly uh, pretty good I think Cody Smith McPhee we haven't spoken much about him but his performance as the, oh. the son is 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 really superb as well and I think that. That whole package it just comes together really well and makes for a very very impactful film. That you get really you get really sucked into this world. I think
1: it's so cohesive. Um, so yeah, we've mentioned Greenwood a lot, but I mean it deserves mentioning uh, <laughs> along with the performances. So um, Greenwood also I believe was composer for There Will Be Blood. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I mean if and that's that's an iconic pairing, the, the soundtrack and the and the, the film there will be blood and, there's and there, there is an there element of that here. film
0: at the start of this Absolutely. i think like, it does evoke that I, I, it goes beyond kind of the, the score but you're right It, it it's it's a key is a key kind of like touch point for that
1: it's sort of yeah mix of mudbound there will be blood and brokeback mountain ranching life going in there as well no. So throwing all those those elements in together. It's it's fantastic. Um, yeah, it's important to know that this book is adapted by, um, from a book by Thomas Savage, which was written in 1967 based on his own experiences um, in the frontier as well. So um, I, I haven't read the book yet, but um, as I mentioned, Jane Campion uh, came out of early retirement because she read the book and felt that it had to be made. It was just begging to be made by her. Um, so that's that's important. So uh, Thomas Savage is one of those writers who should really be in the canon, but isn't. So I'm it's it's good to see that has been given this wonderful story has been given new life.
0: Yeah, in particular, I think by the time you get to the end of this film, you will you will want to check that that because there's a lot of out there. And don't be wrong, I think you know I, I've 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 banged the drum a lot about you know separate regions you shouldn't judge one by the other and i I stand by that but there are a lot of elements in here where i'd be interested to see how it's done in prose as opposed to the the visual i think visually and you know in terms of the script here it's done superbly but i'd I'd be very interested to see how it actually how it works with it in in a different format so it's an interesting film i think the performances are great um again it's another one of these films where i don't really have a a bad word to say about it. We're getting a lot of good good opinions out of me in this show, which is which is not not always been the case. So that's that's good. Okay, so the power of the dog is coming out uh, for a limited cinema run on November nineteenth, uh, and then I believe it's going to be on Netflix from December first. So if you want to catch it in cinemas, do it quick. Uh, but it will be coming to a smaller screen near you very soon after that, and I think we definitely recommend that you check that out.
2: so beautiful when the sun is low rolling over the sands you can see spice in the air the outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes
1: their cruelty to my people is all i've known What's to become of our world? A boy! <laughs> hey,
2: Duncan,
0: can I trust you with something?
1: Yes, always, you know that.
0: I've been having dreams about a girl on Arrakis. I don't know what it means. Dreams make good stories. But everything important happens when we're awake. Are you? you? Want some muscle? I did. No. Okay, so the last film we're going to talk about has been out for a while. It came out just after the last show, but it has been one of the the big releases, uh, one that's been getting a lot of people in cinemas. Um, putting my Cynics hat on, I think its sequel was already greenlit before this film even came out, but during the time since it came out it has been greenlit for a second part, and that is Dune, which is Denny Villeneuve's um, adaptation of the first part of, anyway, uh, Frank Herbert's novel, uh, which has had a long and storied history of films not being made. Um, you know, there was the Jodorowsky adaptation, which never came to fruition. And of course, there's the 1984 David Lynch film, which is um, well-regarded by some, less so by others, but it's certainly a, it's certainly a well-known and, um, you know, uh, much-viewed version of it. So instead, we've now got uh, denny Villeneuve, um doing this who's done a whole bunch of films i'm very keen on um i i am in the camp that really liked the blade runner sequel he did blade runner 2049 um i absolutely loved arrival um i think that's an absolutely superb piece of filmmaking but then a lot of his other films i've also enjoyed sicario uh prisoners and some of his english i've seen less of his um stuff from uh, when he was first starting out um, and some of his French language stuff, I haven't seen as much of that. But what I have seen, um, I've enjoyed a huge amount. So this finds us in kind of a far flung galaxy. And uh, I mean, really, to try and summarize the plot of June on a radio show in about two minutes just seems <laughs> very, very difficult task. Um, but I think the key parts of the setup we probably need to know is the lead is. Paul Atreides, played by Timothy Chalamet, who is part of this kind of like this grand imperial house, who have been tasked with the protection and duty for mining a valuable resource on a desert planet. It's called desert planet called Arrakis, and that particular resource is called spice. Um, and this brings the family or the house that are tasked with this into kind of conflict with the native uh, indigenous people of the planet called the Fremen, who pop up in various different roles during the film. Um, and basically there's a little bit of a, a conflict being set up between the fabulously wealthy house who have been booted off this planet um, by the unseen emperor, and then the Aredes house have been brought in to try and continue that um but there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on with the Paul character and his mother and religious sects and messiah figures and it is a very there's a lot going on in this film um, as there's a lot of, I haven't read it but there's a lot that comes in the book there's a lot going on in the book um, Simon I understand you've seen I don't know if you read the book but certainly you've you've seen the the Lynch adaptation. Um, how do you? How well do you feel it captures the story? Did you did you click with the film? Uh, how well do you think it does?
2: Yeah, so I I have seen the David Lynch film, um, a couple of times. I have read the book, uh, but years ago, so I can't remember a great deal about it. Um, but I I think this adaptation captures the feel of the book a lot more than David Lynch. Um, I I think. What Lynch's film does well is capture the weirdness of the world and of the future. It's set in the world 10,000, so it's a very different society in some ways than than, than our society. Um, but what Dune, what Denise Villeneuve's film captures is how little choice um, Paul Atreides has in all these grand decisions happening around him. Uh, the Paul of this dune is driven by forces way beyond him. He's driven by fate. He's driven by the political machinations of, of House Atreides, of the Emperor, of uh, House Arconan. Um, and Paul doesn't really make a decision in the entire film, uh, which is true to the book. He is driven along by uh, plans that were made years, centuries before he was born. And all he can do is look on helplessly and have visions of the, uh, spoiler alert, holy war that he will wreak across the universe. Um, so I think Vilner really leans into that feeling of helplessness in his depiction of Paul. Um, that really works and makes him kind of an anti-superhero. Uh, you know, he has no agency. Um and he's a much less powerful figure than the Carl McLaughlin's Paul in David Lynch's Dune. And, um, and for me, that was really effective.
0: Clara, what about you?
1: So, um, I find the, the rating system that, uh, Little White Lies does quite useful. So, um, your anticipation rating, your enjoyment rating, and then your hindsight rating. So I would say because because uh the world the world has been very tough and cruel this year i was five for anticipation for sheer escapism and it was five for enjoyment during because i thought it was a very enjoyable film there were very few, it was just it was just so there, there were just so many there were great <laughs> There were so many great battle scenes that I really enjoyed. It Was just like you know, brilliant explosions going off, some really cheesy, uh, throwing yourself into the lines of battle. Hap had just um, some some futuristic bagpipes before going into battle. That was very enjoyable to me. I, f- I find it, I find it very um, enjoyable and convincing. But there were some elements um, that I found you could you could make fun of or you could you could laugh at that were a bit of a, a bit of a cop out. Um, for uh, you know if if you know the book or if you know um Jodorowsky's plans <laughs> for his film um so in the book apparently there was there's a lot of references to islamic traditions um sufism and that world was extremely rich and i know it's impossible to do the kind of world building that you can in an extremely massive book in a film i and i understand that but there were so many elements where every where, where the um the the Furman people's culture their their belief system, which is completely neutered or just watered down. Um, you have a complete, a strange mix of, of actors and accents going on in there. There's no there's no Arabic, even though there is in the book. Uh, and Frank Herbert, uh, he put a lot of effort into creating a sophisticated futuristic language based on what may actually survive in the future, especially in a desert landscape. Uh, but instead, you get this sort of watered down sort of global south thing, which is just really a bit embarrassing at times, especially when uh, the soundtrack often just goes into the um, you know you know those memes, those jokes about if any video game goes to the desert, and then there's like the Arab desert music. There's a lot of that going on. there's a lot of that um, so it could've been I would have liked to see it be more committed to to the world and the more detailed in that sense. Um, but apart from that, i I thought the I thought the set design was so satisfying and intricate um i loved I loved the world that they built in the time that they had, so the dragonfli uh, the, the choppers based on the dragonflies. The water recycling units. I thought
0: it was. I it was great. There's a lot. There's a lot that I like about this film. I'm going to be a bit more of a naysayer about it, though. I think. Um, so first of all, there, there's a lot of things this film does well, right? And Clara, I, I'm I'm delighted you brought up like the the. I think they're, they're the ornithopters. I think that's the name of it. It's, it, it. Yeah. But they're kind of like this. this kind of like this really strange blend of like a helicopter and a dragonfly, and like there's little bits like that which just show, you know, and I don't know, I haven't read the book, so I don't know how these are described in the book, but certainly on a visual level in the film, it shows great imagination for creating a believable world out of the fantastical, right? You know, because we are talking about a desert planet with giant sandworms and, you know, some sort of mystical hallucinogenic thing laced through the sands that you need. You know, I mean, it, it is out there, but it creates a very... To me, anyway, it created quite a lived-in-feeling world. Um, the sense of scale in the film is something that I've not I've not experienced for quite some time. Um, and I think that even goes kind of pre-pandemic, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, we spoke about um, No Time to Die on the last show, and that kind of had like, an amazing sense of scale, cinematic scale. But in terms of what's on screen... I think this film does an absolutely incredible job of these kind of like these, you know, vast battle scenes with, you know, like, you know, ships the size of several buildings crashing out of skies and, mm. uh, you know, like it does all that really, really superbly. I think where it starts to fall down for me is it wants you to invest in this story, which is kind of embodied by people. And honest to God, I think I sat through most of this film and I didn't feel a single thing. And I I, I, I do lay the blame for that at one person in particular, which we'll get to. Um, It's not true across the board. Um, I think there are a couple of exceptions and I think the notable exceptions for me are Rebecca Ferguson, who plays uh, Paul's mother. I think she does an absolutely fantastic job and kind of was a fairly small role, certainly for the first part Mm. of the film anyway. But she kind of conveys... um, these kind of different paths that she's torn between, very, very well, I think. Uh, you know, between protecting her son, and she's also a member of this, this all female, religious sect, um, effectively, and kind of her obligations, or what she sees as her obligations to that. I think she does that very well. I think Jason Momoa, um, as the hilariously named Duncan Idaho, um, so good, who plays kind of like a you know, soldier comes by who's sent ahead to. Arrakis and has a kind of a fraternal bond with Paul I think he injects some very badly needed charisma into the film mm. and I think, he, I, th- I think he also does quite a good job but for the majority of the film we are with Timothy Chalamet um, and one of the so I've written about this film and the French Dispatch, which is another film that we we, we nearly oh spoke about on the show, and I'm pleased to say I've avoided the wrath of Timothy Chalamet stands online so far because on the basis of those two films, <laughs> the man is a charisma vacuum. He sucks the life out of every scene he is in. Um, and again, I don't really know why that is, and I, and at this point, I do lay most of the blame at his feet. But by extension, I will lay it at Denny Villeneuve. Because whilst I'm not you know I'm not really on the Chalamet train, um he has been good in other films. Like he's good in the Bit Party he was in Ladybird, I thought you were superb in call me by your name. Um you know, he he can there are good performances from him out there. I just don't think this film is one of them. Um And I think That kind of prevents you from getting much deeper into the film. It's a very impressive film. But I didn't feel... With that scale, I wasn't... I don't don't feel like I was made to feel much with it. Um, And to me, that kind of... That kind of limited its impact. I also don't... I I also think it focused on that too much and didn't lean into a little bit. Some of the stuff which is there... um, but it just exists. It doesn't really do anything about it. And I think that the the allusions to kind of Islamic and Middle Eastern culture that you spoke about, Claire, that's one of them for me, right? There's a very obvious parallel in this story with... Um, you know kind of like oil rich nations in the middle east. Now, I don't know if that's what what Frank Herbert had planned in the book but certainly he explicitly
1: he was very political about it and he was very right. yeah, he was, was very overtly this is an islamic culture.
0: Right. So it doesn't surprise me to talk is it like Is are hints of arabic you know arabic or kind of like arabic derived words in there. But even the setup this um, you know it's a desert planet there's a very valuable resource in the sands and there's kind of these grand imperial forces that come in and effectively kind of like push um, indigenous people out or kind of like you know maybe more nomadic figures out of that region and basically exploit that resource and you know there are they are indifferent at best to those people they are oppressing them at worst and there's a very obvious parallel between that and kind of the situation a lot of oil rich Middle Eastern states and the the modern day and dating back to when, in fact, now that I'm saying it, it makes sense that he said that dating back to when Frank Herbert wrote the book, right? Um, it again now this is this is obviously a part of it being part one because there's a lot of stuff set up in this film that I think is going to get paid off in the next film, but it means that this film ends very abruptly. I mean, it it, it sets up this kind of this beat for it to end on like he does it does attempt to draw a line under part one i don't think he does it well um and i think when you layer all those things on top of one another the lack of feeling i get from chalamet's performance i find him kind of inscrutable but not in a not in a way that i think served the story or served the character when you layer that on top of the reluctance i would say to lean too much into some of the themes maybe an expectation of them paid off later and then this rather abrupt ending it has i leave with a film that i'm visually very impressed by but that emotionally i feel very uninvolved with um and i think that limits it that that, that and that that to me is kind of where i left it with that i'm i'm pleased films like this can get made but i just mm. i just didn't feel anything
2: i agree jim it it's a cold film it's difficult to connect with emotionally um, and it seems deliberately uninterested in connecting emotionally with you like um paul is a very alienating character um there, there's no hook for the audience to 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 connect with him emotionally um and it, it to the film's credit, it doesn't seem interested in connecting with you emotionally. It's an ideas film, it's a big ideas film with big spectacle, um, but it's not interested in, in connecting with you emotionally. And I enjoyed it on that level, but to contrast it with, say, Petit Maman, there's a music cue from Petit Maman that I cannot listen to without crying, and ultimately that will be a film I keep going back to. Whereas... I'm quite happy to wait until 2020, 2023 for June part two. I mean, I mean, no burning urge to go back to that film. I enjoyed it while it was on, and I'll I'll wait for part two. But I'm not, I'm not hugely emotionally engaged with it.
1: So the the child in me that enjoys the spectacle and the world and um, everything was was enjoying it very much. But mm-hmm. this is what bothers me about the genre of sci fi in film, uh, the, the genre of film sci fi is that. It seems as though a lot of the stories are just watered down to be almost to a childlike level. So they're they're so simple and they have to have they have to have a very clear cut hero and villain. And there's not much nuance in between there. There's not much politics, but the worlds that are built in these sci fi novels are so deep and they're and they're written because they're written by highly intelligent people who have looked at the world and like taken the complexity and then just thrown it into hyper- hyperdrive, into overdrive so in in the book in june um paul atreides led a jihad it wasn't a, it wasn't uh it wasn't like a, a quest it wasn't i mm. it was a jihad it was a political yeah, jihad. And it
0: is named as such yeah
1: yes yeah. It's an, it's a, they it's use a the words
2: holy war in this in this adaptation but claire's right it's a jihad in and the so in the, uh... frank
1: herbert begged uh begged david lynch and jodorowsky and um yeah to to, to keep in one scene one scene that he had in the book which was um, where stakeholders, global stakeholders at an extremely high level, are sitting down to a banquet, and they're discussing um, breaking up the elements of the world, sharing them around, and it's all very cynical and very evil. And the people that are sitting at the table are not just like not just of one country, of one interest. It's all the global leaders. So it's a very political statement about how people betray their culture, they betray their race, they betray people of like they they betray the lower classes. It was a very political book, and it's been completely sidestepped and just made to feel like it's sort of a disnified version of it. Where, as I say, there's sort of a muddled global South side, and then there's the colonizer side, which is very straightforward, and there's not much nuance in there. So there's there's a key character, um, who's supposed to be the oh she's the ecological head. She's she's fremen, and mm. she's meant to be she she's on the planet on a racket the, the, and then the, she the, ends up the, being the a guy.
0: judge of the change. Yes. Yeah, no, Doctor Doctor kind That's
1: that's who I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah, so mm-hmm. in in the book, she's a very controversial figure. She's a turncoat. She's a she's a spy. She's she's very she's very complicated, and she she's she is really a gritty a kernel of that book and the story. But it just feels it just felt so Disney. Without that nuance and the character, the character development, it just felt too simplistic. It, it was, it was crying out for more complexity for me. I, I,
0: I don't know. I don't know if I agree that it's, it's Disneyfied. But I, I, I take your point in the sense that this is. I feel like the film is set up to. I mean, this is kind of the shortcoming I mean, is for me. I feel like the film is set up to have a very simplistic hero and villain narrative attached to it. Mm. I I don't actually think it's really bothered to do that either, quite frankly, because I think you need a bit more involvement from the characters there. But it it alludes to a lot of things that I think and suspect will get paid off in the second film, but it really is to the detriment of this one as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Yeah,
2: I I think it does water down some of those grand ideas. Um, Frank Herbert's novel is essentially the idea of what if oil was also heroin? Like what, yeah. <laughs> what what chaos would yeah. ensue? What what massive dynasties would rise yeah. and fall in pursuit of this substance? Um, and a lot of that is lost in the film's flattening of mm. uh, a lot of those grander uh, and more controversial ideas, mm. um, particularly around the um, Islamic nature of the Fremen and the jihad that Paul will lead, um, and and his messiah status among. Among the people of Arrakis um, and it does flatten out a lot of that in favor of more um, cartoonish depictions. So, for example, the main villains are the Harkonnens yeah. who are um, depicted in a in a fairly regressive way as as big characters. It's fairly fat phobic in its depiction of, of of bigger characters being more evil, and Stellan Skarsgård is. Um, the main villain, Harkonnen Baron Harkonnen, in in a fat suit, which feels a little, it feels very old fashioned in terms of depicting, you know, cartoonish levels of villainy.
0: Yeah, I don't think. Um, though I, I, I also that's another one of the, um, you know, because I mentioned exceptions to the the emo- what I felt like were kind of like the performances that were lacking. I think the two, I mean, I. I kind of hesitate to say mean because I mean, in particular, Dave Bautista's in it for all of about like five scenes or something. But like you know, Dave Bautista plays one of these um, one of the Harkonnens, and then there's a lead one with uh, Stellan Skarsgård. I don't really think they they do a whole lot with it. I mean, they're not given much to work with. But it's like you say, Simon. It's even on a visual level, which is not something that I'd I'd said before. But you're entirely correct. But I think visually and on a performance level, it's a very one-note kind of like this person is evil. You know, is yeah. it like there the, there isn't that there isn't the nuance that the film hints at and it wants to imply it, but it doesn't really do anything to actually have it interact in any meaningful way with the characters of the world for me. Hmm.
1: I have to say I do love the Harken and Spider. I'm gonna put in a put in a shout out for that. That was that was great. That was <laughs> nightmarish. I mean that if if that doesn't say evil, what does?
2: Yeah, it's it's missing some of the interestingness of, of Lynch's film mm. where you've got Sting playing one of the Harkonnens yeah yeah <laughs> in, a, in a fantastically deranged performance exactly
1: deranged that's what I was kind of looking for I want something like crazy and unhinged because it is meant to be yeah
2: that, that's what I mean by David Lynch gets a lot of the weirdness of this world of June in a way that Villeneuve's flattens a little mm.
1: however it's still enjoyable would watch again at Christmas with the family
2: yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it.
0: There there's a, there's a lot to get out of it. I mean, certainly during a viewing, right? I think that the main the main thing for me is I watched it, and there's a lot of great stuff. You know, in particular, there's bit there, there's scenes where kind of like the fremen kind of like they hide in the sand before attacking people, and then they kind of like sweep out of it, like the you know out from the ground. like there's so many things in here which which look incredible. The thing for me is I enjoy watching it; it looks incredible. Nothing lingered for me after, and I think mm-hmm. that's a function of a lot of the, the a lot of the stuff we've spoken about. Like it doesn't leave you with a lot to to think about. It leaves you with a lot of images where you're like, "Wow, that's cool." But it doesn't mm. do anything with it, in my view. So,
2: Yeah, I feel like you can either be a big important film or you can be Star Wars. And <laughs> this leans towards big important, but it's still caught in the middle of those mm. two poles.
0: Yeah, yeah, agreed.
2: Yeah, I just want to give a shout out to um, my Twitter account, at everydune, which is a bot <laughs> oh, tweeting yeah. the names of every June character. Awesome. Uh, a different one every day.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have had some good fun with that account actually since you set that up, So yeah, yeah, oh it's, God, it's, go it's
2: they turn out to be less funny than I might have hoped.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually quite interesting how pedestrian some of them actually are actually. Exactly. <laughs> so it's not turned
1: it's not turned racist yet or
2: anything. No, not quite. There's not there's not a, no, they're not all Duncan Idahoers, <laughs> unfortunately.
1: <laughs> Oh stunken ouds.
0: So so yeah, so uh June came out on October twenty second. Um as we broadcast it's still playing in plenty of cinemas, it is doing very well. Um that sequel has been green lit. So I think it's it's kind of mixed from us here, but certainly it is a film that's worth going to the cinema to see. Um although if you do happen to be listening to somewhere where you've got HBO Max, you can also watch it on the smallest, tinniest. Uh, sounding screen that you can find as well if you wish but I think it would be better off trying to give you a cinema if you can. Um, so a bit mixed but definitely worth checking out. Okay so we've come to the part of the show where we recommend some short films. Uh, to try and check out in the coming month. We skipped this last month, but we're back on it now. Uh, We've been organised, so Simon and I have both got uh, a short film to recommend. Um, So Simon, why don't you kick things off uh, and tell us what the short film you recommend this month is.
2: Yes, uh, I want to recommend a film, a short documentary, uh, directed by Charlie Tyrell, which is called My Dead Dad's Porno Tapes. (laughs) Um it's uh quite a short, quite funny documentary using kind of collage animation and it's about fitting together someone's life retrospectively from the stuff that they left behind. In this case, his dead dad's weird porno VHSs. Uh it's got a light tone, but it delves into some important subject matter and and turns into a film about trying to be better than your parents, trying to stop cycles of generational trauma. Um that was really interesting and really quite moving. Um, so that's my dead dad's porno tapes, uh, and I found it on Vimeo. Really good.
0: All right, good stuff. I'll check it out. We'll make sure to drop a link in the description of wherever you're uh, listening to this from. You've got talent for picking like very, very interesting-sounding titled shorts. There, Simon. I forget what one. We'll I like it. the weird. I and like the cheap. weird titles. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so in my case, I'm going to go for a film called *Uncontrol*, uh, directed by Manon de Reaper. Um It's a short horror film which follows a woman coming home and uh, getting inside and locking it up. And she's obviously she's obviously um, has OCD, and there's a certain amount of uh, obsession about that process and fear of what lies beyond that door once she's um, got herself in there. But it does a very good job of Turning that around uh, as a metaphor for where kind of where the real enemy or where the real fear is is within. Um, it's got very good musical um, score to go with it and settles that settles into that mood very well. It's very unsettling. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out it was also shot during the pandemic, um, so it, it's a very short film, it's only about six minutes or long, it really is uh, really is short, but it does a lot in those minutes and creates a very good atmosphere, excellent lead performance in it. Um, it's also worth pointing out that it, it was done very responsibly, I think uh, Manon intended that people would only do eight hour days, she didn't kind of have people on set for, you know, ridiculous amount of time, so I think it's it's also quite a good film to show that you can actually make really good pieces of film whilst working responsibly around the pandemic and working hours and respecting people's boundaries and this sort of thing. Um, it's worth pointing out, just for the sake of disclosure, it's not a fully dispassionate recommendation. I used to write for the the website that Mano set up, uh, Film Inquiry. She was the founder and used to be the editor-in-chief of that. She's now CEO and has moved into um, filmmaking. She does a lot of uh, a lot of work around representation, linking people up in uh, film production to make that bit far, So it's just worth pointing that out, but I think it is a really, really good short film. It's screened at a few film festivals and it will probably go to a few more, so um, I'll put a link to the socials and you can keep an eye out for when it shows up. But those are our two short film recommendations for this month. So, that basically concludes our show for this month. A uh, lot of big films in there, a lot of films that will probably hang around in the cultural conversation for quite some time, I think. Um, Clara, what is up for you in the, the next month? What's happening with you in the world of film, or just the world in general?
1: I'm just trying to survive as a wage slave. And catch some time. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> And catch yeah, some amen. time in the evening to watch as many great films as I can.
0: <laughs> so. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, the, You've got plenty of options in the coming months, there's a lot of good stuff coming out. We've talked about some of it, but there's, there's more even beyond that. Uh, Simon, what about you?
2: Yeah, I think I'm coasting towards Christmas, and, and me and my partner are going to start our tradition of watching a bad Christmas movie every single week. Um,
0: is it, presumpt- we, is it we presumptuous to, to put a castle for Christmas in that list?
2: Uh, no I don't think so I've heard Carrie always Scottish accent in that and I think that will be I think that will be a one that
0: might engender a strong reaction from me but we'll we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. see how that goes yeah. we'll see how it goes
2: no, looking forward to that, that looks train wreck bad um, <laughs> and other than that I've got some reviews coming out around Cambridge Film Festival Um on, on TakeOneCinema.net
0: yeah exactly um, so Simon's got a couple of very good reviews coming out that are linked to that which is a festival I'll be around for the start of and um, that festival starts on the 18th it's got a lot of good stuff on the programme um Titan by Julia I is on the film. Uh, we'll hopefully talk about that on the Ooh. show, um, closer to its general release. Um, so that's showing Petit, My Man, we've already mentioned the screening. Uh, Ali and Ava was quite well received at London Film Festival, I think, and that's uh, the opening film. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. I think Memoria uh, is also playing there, so a lot of good stuff happening there. So that'll be taking up uh, some of my time. Uh, beyond that, just keep an eye on the, kind of the other releases that are coming out. On a Cinetopia and a Cinescapes front, um, I think the things to mention are there will be an indoor screening of La Dolce Vita, uh, Federico Fellini's classic, uh, on November 21st. Um, so the shortly after this goes out, and that'll be at the Moxie Hotel in Edinburgh. So check that out. Looks really interesting, really worth seeing. Brilliant film. Um, the networking nights are continuing. There'll be another one of them on December the 14th also at the Moxie Hotel in Edinburgh. And the interesting thing about that one, beyond kind of being able to just link up with a lot of like-minded people and talk about film is there will be a programme of Dutch short films which will be done in conjunction with Edinburgh Short Film Festival. Uh, So that should be really interesting to check out. And of course, it would, wouldn't be this podcast if we didn't mention the fact that Edinburgh Short Film Festival is still going on as we go out. It started uh, on November 5th. It keeps running until the weekend after we broadcast. Um, so there are events at Summer Hall in Edinburgh on Friday the 19th, the 20th and the 21st. And as this goes out, you'll also be able to access a 10-year uh, anniversary best-of online um set of films and you can watch that anywhere online, I think it's £7 for the set and there's a lot of good films in there i reviewed a couple of them um, during coverage of Edinburgh Short Film Festival in previous years so it's really worth checking out, um, that's a really really good way to get involved with that festival even if you're not quite in Edinburgh so, lot of stuff going on uh, we'll be back next month with more reviews and more happening in the world of film um, in the meantime, check us out on the socials, we'll put links in the description down below. But until then, next month, take care.